Welcome to LDS Perspectives Podcast, where we interview amazing LDS scholars about Mormon history, doctrine, and culture. here today with Christian Heimberger of the Joseph Smith Papers Project. Christian received a BA in American Studies from Brigham Young University and PhD in Modern American History from the University of Colorado, Boulder. He wrote his doctoral dissertation on Japanese Americans who left World War II incarceration camps to work in communities around the Mountain West and is working on a book manuscript based on that dissertation. Christian has taught 19th and 20th century American history courses at Utah Valley University and Brigham Young University. He is currently employed as a historian and documentary editor at the Joseph Smith Papers and is a co-editor on Documents, Volume 5, Documents, Volume 9, and Documents, Volume 13. We are going to be discussing some of the interesting material published in Volume 9 of the Joseph Smith Papers Project document series. Just as a little bit of background, can you tell our audience about what the Joseph Smith Papers Project does? Yeah, sure. The Joseph Smith Papers Project is a papers project, meaning we will publish and print all of the documents sent to or created by Joseph Smith and his staff. And that includes things like correspondence, journals, revelations, discourses, meeting minutes, financial documents, even legal documents. Which is great. These documents are really meant to be used by scholars in their research. Am I correct? Yeah, it's a scholarly project. That's how we started out and that's how we continue to operate I think we realized at a certain point that we also had an audience in members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, but we still set our tone and our professional standards to writing to scholars. But someone who is just interested in perusing these documents, they can do it for free, can't they? They can. They can go on our website. (laughs) We have a really robust website that essentially has all of the documents, all of Joseph Smith's papers there in full color. Uh, You can zoom in on images. And for most of these, we have transcripts as well. So it's a pretty amazing website that we hope that people will use. When I was skimming through the volume nine documents in preparation for this interview, I don't know, in my mind, I kind of expected them to be arranged thematically and they weren't. They were chronologic. So they were here, there, everywhere. In a way, it's kind of fun because you see all the things that Joseph was dealing with at various times in his life. Right. This is our 20th volume that we've come out with, the Joseph Smith Papers, and number nine in the document series, as you said. The document series is really the core of our project, and we present all of Joseph Smith's papers essentially from July of 1828 to June of 1844. So if you're ambitious and you read one of the documents volumes from cover to cover, you really gain um, a much deeper appreciation or understanding of Joseph Smith's day-to-day life. It's not something you're going to get when you're reading a monograph or some other scholarly book that tries to hit things thematically. 
Christian, how did you personally get involved with this project? And what do you do when you say you're an editor? What does that involve? Right. So I've been working at the Joseph Smith Papers for about six and a half years. And I was attracted by the project's ambition, you know, publishing all of Joseph Smith Papers. I was attracted by its professionalism and by its transparency. I think I realized pretty early on that the Joseph Smith Papers had the resources to do something amazing. We finally had the financial resources, thanks to the Miller family. We had talented, professionally trained historians and editors. And I think most importantly, we had access to all the records necessary to produce a balanced scholarly examination of Joseph Smith. So that's really what attracted me to the project. So in terms of what I do, I'm a documentary editor, which means that my job is to help assemble the documents, to transcribe the documents so that people can actually read Joseph Smith's papers without having to come down to the church history library and sort through all of the uh, difficult handwriting, such as Willard Richards. They can see it. I think all of the handwriting is difficult. Yeah. <laughs> I remember sitting at a microfish machine for like 40 minutes, looking at one line, thinking, I really want to know what that says, but it's just not coming. Yeah, well, that makes two of us. I, I'm a 20th century historian by training, and so most of what I looked at during my dissertation was typed documents. So it's it, I've had, had a crash course in handwriting uh, since I've been working here. Getting through those things, helping transcribe them for other people to be able to read and have access to is really, really important. It's not the sexiest work in terms of what historians do. Um, there's a lot of mundane tasks as well, but I think being close to the documents is one of the greatest things about working here. In the past, when I have interviewed your colleagues about different volumes, I've asked them to identify some of their favorite documents because I figure if you're working on these volumes, I don't know, it takes you more than six months, a couple of years oh, to yeah. get one of these document <laughs> volumes out. Um, there are ones that resonate with you more than others do, so mm -hmm. I lean on those years of work. So I asked you to identify five, six documents that you found very relevant and interesting. And then I picked out a couple that I found interesting as well. So we're going to go through these. And I'm going to warn you again, they're going to be kind of random. <laughs> but they're things we picked from that period. It was the end of December 1841 to April 1842. Mm -hmm. Is that yep, correct? That's correct. Okay. We're going to start with Joseph's tenure as editor of the church newspaper, which was called The Times and Seasons. So before we look at specific documents, can you briefly tell us how Joseph came to be the editor of a local newspaper? So Joseph Smith had become intimately involved in the temporal affairs of the church by the early 1840s, including allocating land in the, the burgeoning city of Nauvoo. When the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles returned from their mission to England in 1841, Joseph directed them to take more responsibility for the business affairs of the church so that he could devote more of his time to spiritual welfare. Likely, uh, in connection to this, the Twelve began to discuss managing the church's newspaper, Times and Seasons. On January 28th of 1842, Joseph dictated a short revelation that instructed the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles to assume editorial control of the Times and Seasons. 
In order to do this, uh, they had to purchase the paper, actually the whole printing establishment, which included the newspaper and printing equipment and, and bookbinding equipment, from Ebenezer Robinson, who was then um, the owner and operator of the paper. So they bought the paper in February of 1842 for $6,600. And despite what was said in the Revelation, that the 12 were to assume editorial control, it was Joseph who assumed that position as editor with Apostle John Taylor assisting him in writing content, as well as Wilford Woodruff, who sort of ran the business part of the firm. None of the documents that we have from this period explain why Joseph took over editorial control of the paper, but we do know that he used it to publish original content, um, such as the, the Book of Abraham or church history. He used it to communicate teachings and policies, to convey news about missionary work, and to counter falsehoods about Latter-day Saint practice and belief. You shared some documents about Joseph Smith's early endeavors as editor. Mm -hmm. There's been some controversy regarding whether Joseph was a hands-on editor or if he just kind of let other people run it, maybe perhaps like W.W. Phelps. What do these documents tell you? One is dated March 1st, 1842. Given what we know about Joseph's tendency to use scribes and ghostwriters, there are legitimate questions about how involved he was in writing content for the paper over the, the course of the eight months that he was officially listed as editor. Some scholars have surmised on the one hand that Joseph must have written everything because he was listed as editor. Um, others postulate that John Taylor or William W. Phelps or others must have written everything for him because Joseph was not a writer. I think that evidence supporting these theories is often speculative at best. I will only say that Joseph appears to have been heavily involved in the first several issues of the paper at a minimum. Did Joseph ever say anything about his editorial duties and how much he was taking upon himself in the pages of the Times and Seasons? In the first March issue of the paper, Joseph very explicitly states, this paper commences my editorial career. I alone stand responsible for it and shall do for all papers having my signature henceforth. So fairly direct. In some cases, journal entries document that he proofed the paper before it went to press, so we know he's pretty heavily involved in those issues. But there's also evidence that in some of the pieces he produced for the Times and Seasons, they were collaborative in nature. So I think, again, it gets to this larger question, was Joseph heavily involved? Was he just minorly involved? I think there's a mixture there. So the Quorum of the Twelve in the church purchase this printing press in February. Already in March, we have one of its most important publications coming forth, something highly anticipated by the members of the church. It's the Book of Abraham, translated, and we use that term loosely, right. from the papyri, that Joseph purchased in Kirtland. So this was a big event. Can you tell us a little bit about what we see in the times and seasons about that translation? So Joseph Smith began translating the Egyptian papyri in 1835 after he purchased the ancient records from a traveling exhibitor named Michael Chandler. Those translation efforts resulted in a manuscript referred to as the Book of Abraham, as well as several Egyptian alphabet and grammar documents. 
then we know that there was a period where the translation was, was kind of put on hold. Likely operating out of his new office in the brick store in Nauvoo, Joseph resumed translating portions of the Egyptian papyri in early 1842. So on February 19th, Apostle Wilfred Woodruff, who had been appointed to work alongside the prophet and John Taylor in the printing office, recorded in his journal, quote, The Lord is blessing Joseph with power to reveal the mysteries of the kingdom of God, to translate through the Urim and Thummim ancient records and hieroglyphs as old as Adam or Abraham, which causes our hearts to burn with this while we behold their glorious truths opened unto us. We know that Joseph is beginning to translate again in this, this early 1842 period. Around the same time, Joseph commissions engraver Reuben Headlock to carve woodcuts of a hypocephalus and two vignettes depicted in the Egyptian papyri. Those woodcuts were then used to create dies for metal printing plates from which three illustrations or facsimiles, as we often refer to them, were printed. Shortly after he became editor, Joseph published the first 13 verses of the Book of Abraham, along with facsimile one in the March 1st issue of the Times and Seasons. Entries in Joseph's journal indicate that he continued to translate and revise content related to the Book of Abraham to produce new content from the Egyptian papyri. So in the 15th March issue of Times and Seasons, he publishes another installment of the Book of Abraham along with Facsimile 2. And this is the installment, the issue that we feature in Documents Volume 9. The church members were aware that Joseph had translated uh, Egyptian papyri in 1835. This really represents the first time that most Latter-day Saints, uh, and really the, the world at large, saw the fruits of those efforts. That's wonderful. When I interviewed Robin Jensen about the Book of Abraham volume that the Joseph Smith Papers Project released, I think it was last year, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. yeah last year. He said, we just don't have a lot of information on how the members reacted to the publication of the Book of Abraham, which was huge. Right. We have information about how the wider U.S. public reacted. Mm -hmm. They just guffawed, you know, they just thought it was just totally fraudulent. Right. Were you able to find any documents talking about how the local members felt about what they were reading after it was published? You, you didn't mention that writing before it was published. Right. I think we have some idea. Again, Wilford Woodruff is a great source for this. He wrote in his journal, this was after it was published, he said, The truths of the Book of Abraham are truly edifying, great, and glorious, which are among the rich treasures that are revealed to us in the last days. And then three months later, he wrote a letter to his fellow apostle, Parley P. Pratt, who was in England at the time. And he informed him that the Latter-day Saints beyond Nauvoo had shown a great interest in the Book of Abraham. Pratt, who was the head of the mission in England and the editor of the church-owned newspaper Millennial Star, reprinted the Book of Abraham for his British readers with, um, he said, with much pleasure. That was how he quoted that. In 1851, we know, this is many years later, of course, Franklin D. Richards includes the Book of Abraham along with other revelatory texts that Joseph Smith produced in a collection titled The Pearl of Great Price. So, we know that it continues to be really important for, for church members in the years after Joseph Smith is, is murdered. Non-believers, as you can imagine, responded with everything from fascination to derision. Newspapers on the East Coast, including the, the New York Tribune and the New York Herald, reported on Joseph Smith's translation of the Book of Abraham 
the Herald calling one of the facsimiles a curious map of the Mormon solar system, <laughs> which I thought was kind of interesting. It's actually quite articulate. Yeah, yeah, it really is. There was a Boston paper that published the first installment of the book, even though they said it came at great expense, and I assume that they're referring to how much it cost to typeset it. So that's pretty interesting there that, you know, despite the fact that it's an expensive reprinting, they did it anyway. Wow, what interesting content, because, I mean, even if they didn't believe it, they would find it highly entertaining. Right. Especially in that culture so steeped in the Bible. Right. Well, and, and, and as you said, there were all obviously other newspapers that found it more comical than anything else. Um, the, the Pittsburgh Baptist paper witness, you know, briefly acknowledged the content of the, the 15th March issue that's featured in D9. And they characterized it as Joseph Smith's, quote, blundering imitation of the history of Abraham. So again, you, you kind of have these responses that are sort of all over the board uh, from being just fascinated and interested in what's going on to, to flat out derision. Oh, if nothing else, he created fodder for pithy right. lines <laughs> of the newspaper. Exactly. I mentioned earlier that the members had been waiting in anticipation for years to have this published, and the church had other printing presses since the time that Joseph began translating the Book of Abraham. Why now? Why did he publish it in the Times and Seasons in 1842? Yeah, that's a really good question. The records don't really say, but if I had to guess, I would say that the, the constant movement between Kirtland and Missouri and Illinois between you know, 1837 and 1839, of course, this is largely because of persecution, and uh, the, the pressing need to buy land in and around Nauvoo and, and to establish that city really contributed to Joseph Smith not having the time to sort of complete his translation in the way that he wanted to or, to or to publish it. By early 1842, he has some time to return to translating. Um, and as editor, he now has the ability to sort of frame the Book of Abraham in the way that he sees fit. So I think that's partially why it's happening at this time. Again, that's kind of speculation on my part because we don't have any uh, specific, I mean, wouldn't it be great if Joseph said, this is why I did this? Um, but he doesn't. <laughs> so we're left to a little bit of speculation there. But I think it's reasonable to say that it's probably because of these other factors. Let's talk about another document that was printed in these early days of 1842 when Joseph was editor and was taking hands-on control of the publication of the paper. It's called Church History. Sometimes we refer to it as the Wentworth Letter. Now we know it as the Articles of Faith. What do we know about who assisted in the creation of this document? Because we don't think of Joseph as an articulate writer. He liked to have scribes. Yet we also attribute the authorship of this document historically to Joseph. Right. Because we don't have a, a manuscript copy of church history, we don't know how much text that Joseph Smith wrote or dictated. We do know that Joseph conveyed aspects of his first vision to selected audiences in, in 1835, 1836, and 1840. And it's clear that the, the historical narrative in church history parallels other accounts that Joseph Smith and his scribes produced between 1832 and 1838, or echoed wording from an 1840 track written by uh, Orson Pratt. In addition to consulting these texts, Joseph likely counseled with trusted associates to compose the document. 
just recently I came across a reminiscent account written by Franklin D. Richards, who recalled that Wentworth's request for information, um, and I'm just going to quote this, he says that this request seemed to forcibly remind the prophet of the importance of having the history of his wonderful work restored to such a condition that correct information could be given to authors, editors, and publishers. And he undertook this with his clerks, recorder, and all available aid from private journals, correspondence, and his own indelible memory. So again, this is a reminiscent account, but Richards was probably in a position to, to know something about this. And so it's, it's fascinating because he's essentially saying here, it's, it's coming from Joseph Smith's memory, it's coming from other sources, other things that we've created, the clerks were involved, um, and so it's probably this kind of hodgepodge. And it's clear from analyzing the text that they drew on several different documents to produce things like the, the Articles of Faith, right, those 13 statements of belief. Those in particular, we, we can trace the 1830 Articles and Covenants, Oliver Cowdery's 1834 Broad Principles, or or Joseph Young's 1836 Leading Principles. Textually, those are very, very similar. Whatever Joseph Smith's intellectual debt to Pratt or Cowdery or others, we hear the Joseph Smith papers consider it a Joseph Smith document, right? Joseph Smith introduces himself at the beginning of the article as the founder, and his name appears at the conclusion as the author. Well, thanks for giving us that insight on that very familiar document. Now, I don't want our listeners to get whiplash, but this is kind of how this document volume is arranged to go from one idea to another idea. We're going to hop back to a letter you identified for me from a B.F. Withers, and it's dated December 28th. 1841. And it's just kind of a random letter. Who knows why it got preserved? We're happy it was preserved. You mentioned that it was interesting and cryptic. So you'll have to tell me why you felt that way. But when I read this letter, I thought it might resemble that of any crackpot writing to a public figure. So I wondered how widely known was Joseph Smith and Mormonism in the United States at this time? This mysterious letter is mailed from Natchez, Mississippi, and signed by a man named B.F. Withers, as you mentioned. And he tells Joseph that he is uh, an agent of a large and respectable secret association of gentlemen associated together for the purpose of blank. (laughs) Uh, And then he inquires if the Mormons wouldn't prefer building their temple in a richer country than become rulers of the land. And it gets even better. He also asks if the Nauvoo Legion would want to engage in an expedition which, if successful, would secure to all engaged honor and wealth. So yeah, it's, just, it's filled with these really fascinating ideas. But again, it's so cryptic. Um, I spent a long time trying to figure out who is B.F. Withers. Why is he writing? What secret organization does he represent? Joseph received a fair number of these kind of unsolicited letters over the years from random people really representing a spectrum from spiritual seekers sincerely inquiring about the church to people who sought to trick or entrap him. As a historian, again, it was just really fun to try to figure out which organization he represented or if he was some sort of filibuster, uh, which was someone who engages in unsanctioned military expedition to like a foreign country or, or to foment rebellion in a place like Texas or Mexico. Ultimately, there wasn't enough evidence to determine precisely who Withers was or what organization he represented. 
But it definitely makes clear that Joseph was a widely known figure in the United States by this time. Eastern newspapers frequently uh, reported on or republished reports from local newspapers related to Joseph and the Latter-day Saints. They often commented on the construction of the city of Nauvoo and on the temple, on um, the impoverished converts that are pouring into the United States from England, on Joseph's translation efforts, or even his legal hearings. When Joseph arrived in Springfield, Illinois in, in January of 1843 for his habeas corpus hearing, the Illinois legislature actually broke session when word arrived that Joseph's miscarriage had pulled into town. And even Mary Todd Lincoln uh, attended all three days of the hearing rather than listening to her brand new husband argue a case across the street. So yeah, I think it's fair to say that Joseph had obtained a, a level of celebrity by this point in time. Oh, that's super interesting. Thank you for sharing that with us. We're going to shift to a different idea once again. So much of what we talk about during this period has to do with the establishment of Nauvoo and the British saints, their conversion, and their immigration to the United States. We forget that there were Latter-day Saints living in more than just these two areas. What do we learn about the Eastern Branch's role in missionary work and support of temple building and also their difficulties with church administration from the documents in this volume. Yeah, so I think part of the blame can be placed on historians for sort of focusing, right, on the center of the church in their work. And sort of the distant and foreign branches are, are definitely an under-examined aspect of church history. In Documents Volume 9, we feature a variety of letters from missionaries that are serving in the eastern United States that give us a better idea of sort of the effect of missionary work and and the growth and challenges that resulted from it. For example, we feature a letter from Eli McGinn, who was a missionary in New England who attracted a lot of converts because of his very spirited discourses. Um, In in the course of researching this document, I came across some really interesting letters by a rival preacher who was writing to his brother and talking a lot about Eli McGinn and you know, how he was kind of baffled how McGinn had all these people flocking to be baptized. So we also have letters from Erastus Snow, who helped build branches in the Boston area. And I think what's really interesting about these letters from McGinn and from Snow is that both missionaries are sending donations from converts in their area to build the temple in Nauvoo which sort of shows how the periphery um, helped to strengthen the center. And again, that's a narrative that I don't think we hear a lot of. I don't think so either. We hear about the people in Nauvoo who were uh, making clothes for the workers or donating their time, but we don't hear that they're sending money from distant branches, which yeah. is kind of cool. Yeah, it is cool. And we actually have like with the banks that they're sending them from and the bank notes and stuff like that that are listed on the letters. So it's it's pretty pretty interesting in that way. I can't believe all these documents made it across the plane. <laughs> it's so amazing to me. Yeah, it is pretty fascinating. I mean, when you think about all the things that were preserved, it, it's it's quite amazing, actually. We also learn about the challenges that some branches faced as they grew, um, including the Philadelphia branch, which had huge numbers, but even bigger problems. Um, at one point, internal divisions split the branch into two factions with each supporting a different leader. And they even met at different buildings spaced a mile apart and, and had advertisements in the newspaper uh, sort of competing for, I don't want to say for converts, but competing for people to listen. 
in April of 1842, the, the members of one division request permission from Joseph to formally form a separate congregation, which is eventually granted. And this is one of the documents we feature in, in D9. Um, and this letter shows kind of the challenges of growth and, and the differences in leadership styles in Eastern branches. You know, again, you're kind of far away, far removed from Nauvoo and from central church leadership. But um, it also shows how these distant branches were administered to by Joseph and the Twelve from Nauvoo. Abolitionism was a big issue in this period in U.S. history. Do we have any documents that elaborate on Joseph Smith's view towards the emancipation of slaves? Yeah, we don't know a great deal about Joseph's views on abolitionism, but the documents that we do have demonstrate a sort of evolution with regard to his views on slavery. In Documents Volume 5, which was a, a volume that I was involved in, uh, we, we featured a letter in which Joseph tries to distance the church from radical abolitionists who were, who were gaining many followers in Ohio, and essentially says that he won't tell others that they can't own slaves. And his response was largely shaped by accusations in the early 1830s that the Latter-day Saints of Missouri had tampered with slaves and had sown dissensions and seditions among them. And this had kind of contributed to the violence waged against church members in Missouri. So in this document in, in D5, uh, Joseph is trying to be very careful not to anger um, citizens in the South uh, where missionaries were engaged in proselytizing efforts. But Joseph's views were not static. Uh, by the period of this volume, Joseph and the church felt, I think, less pressure to distance themselves from the abolitionism. In March of 1842, Joseph and John C. Bennett exchanged letters in which Joseph expresses indignation that uh, Missouri citizens had detained, tried, and, and convicted three Illinois students for helping slaves escape to Canada. And this is partially because he, he well, this is speculation on my part, but he likely saw a parallel between his own detention in Missouri jails in 1838 and 1839 and the failed attempts to extradite him back there in 1841. And so in this letter, he's quite indignant about it. Though Joseph, like other Americans, had articulated fears about miscegenation in the 1830s, he expressed a, a more progressive view of the intellectual capabilities of black slaves by the end of his life, advocating granting slaves certain civil rights, and he even campaigned for their emancipation as a presidential candidate in 1844. So again, I think the documents, if you read them uh, as you would in the document series, you can see an evolution, a change in, in his perspective on slavery and to some degree um, abolitionism. Let's go back to talking about Joseph Smith, the leader during this period, we alluded to the fact that he wore a lot of hats. And critics have looked at the hats that he's worn. In fact, I just read a book on this period, and right there it stated it. It says the people were nervous because there was a lot of power in the city of Nauvoo, which meant there was a lot of power in the hands of Joseph Smith. And one of the things I noticed in this volume is a bit of a reconstructionism of that image of Joseph. So can you tell us a little bit about the hats he wore and maybe why he wore so many hats? Sure. 
Uh, Joseph certainly wore a lot of hats during the period covered by Documents Volume 9. In addition to being president and trustee and trust for a multinational church, he's also the vice mayor of Nauvoo. He is the lieutenant general of the Nauvoo Legion, uh, not to mention a husband and a father, right? Additionally, during our volume, he opens a mercantile store. He purchased and assumed editorship of the Times and Seasons, as we mentioned. He became a master mason in the Nauvoo Masonic Lodge, and he also helped to organize the Female Relief Society of Nauvoo. Of course, after this volume, Joseph became the mayor of Nauvoo and, by extension, judge of the municipal court, and he ran for president in 1844. So, you know, he's a busy guy. In terms of what this teaches us about Joseph Smith as a leader, um, there are some scholars that argue that Joseph's many roles meant that he was, you know, a megalomaniac who had to control everything. I think this volume shows that Joseph was charismatic and had a, his hand in a lot of things, but also that he wasn't afraid to delegate control of a project or an initiative to a trusted colleague. Um, this was true of the newspaper, right? Joseph starts out as editor, but pretty quickly Taylor takes over editing responsibilities um, it's true with the brick store. Joseph's in the brick store the first day it opens, and he's he's waiting on patrons. But that the the brick store is leased to Willard Richards pretty quickly right after. Joseph is trustee and trust for the church, and donations are coming to him. But in time, that that's delegated, where he's not handling the the donations himself. Um, it's true for land transactions. Um, he delegates the building of the temple and the Nauvoo House to others as well. And even the Release Society, you look at the, the first couple documents that relate to the Release Society in Documents Volume 9, and you see that he's there, he helps to organize, but he very quickly turns over a responsibility to the women themselves, right, to Emma. So I think that, you know, again, there's legitimate questions about Joseph having a lot of power in Nauvoo, but I think you can see examples, if you're looking through the documents carefully, of him also delegating and sort of turning over some of that power to others. An interesting thing happens in the state of the union at this time. They pass a federal law that allows for bankruptcy, and Joseph takes advantage of this. Why might he want to do that, and how did it turn out for him? So in mid-April 42, he, he files for bankruptcy, as you mentioned, um, and this was a newly created law, um, and so the details hadn't really been worked out. But this is occurring during a, a nationwide depression right, that had been going since at least 1837. The immediate context uh, for Joseph filing bankruptcy is that attorneys in the area began advertising their services to help people file, right, as attorneys do. Joseph and at least 14 other community leaders took advantage of the new law. In an even broader context, Joseph's notice of bankruptcy was one of 350 notices in a single issue of the Springfield newspaper Sangamo Journal. Um, usage of the new law was so widespread that the notices filled nearly every column of every page of that newspaper. So it wasn't just Joseph, and I think that's really important context. There were a lot of people trying to take advantage of this new law. I think that Joseph's bankruptcy application illustrates that though the saints were prospering in Nauvoo, the specter of debt continued to haunt Joseph Smith in the church. Most of the debts were incurred through the purchase of mercantile goods in New York in 1836, um, as well as some from the steamboat Nauvoo um, and land in Commerce, Illinois. 
this is something that's ever present in Joseph's life, right? This, this specter of debt is, is sort of haunting him. And so it kind of comes to a head here when he declares bankruptcy, but it's been there for a long time. Are his debts forgiven? So no, um, of all the, the Nauvoo community leaders that I mentioned above, Joseph's was the only one that was denied. Um, the U.S. attorney, Justin Butterfield, argued that uh, Joseph had undisclosed assets and therefore was not uh, able to declare bankruptcy. And you wonder why he felt persecuted. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. There's an important timeline that unfolds during this period regarding the establish of a Masonic Lodge the Release Society, and the revealing of the Temple Endowment. Can you walk through these unfolding events? So let me answer your question by first taking you on sort of a virtual tour of what I consider to be kind of the geographical focus of our volume. So on January 5th, 1842, Joseph opens a mercantile store in a uh, recently completed two-story brick building that's located on Water Street. The mercantile store occupied the bulk of the first floor, uh, along with the temple recorder's office, where you know, this is where Willard Richards is keeping Joseph's journal and recording tithing donations in the, the Book of the Law of the Lord. On the second story of the building was a private office um, in which Joseph resumed translating the Book of Abraham and where he's working on his own personal history. Also on the, the second floor was a large room um, that was often referred to as the lodge room. And it's in this room that these very important events that you mentioned occurred from mid-March to early May of 1842. So if you're looking at Documents Volume 5 and you're reading, you, you open up to March 15th, and on that day, the Nauvoo Masonic Lodge was officially installed. Um, and then the following day, on March 16th, Joseph is raised as a Master Mason, which is sort of the, the third and final degree of masonry. The next day, March 17th, uh, Joseph presided at the organizational meeting of the Female Relief Society of Nauvoo and sort of instructed the women about the purpose of the society to you know, care for the poor and to strengthen the morals and virtues of the community. Both of these organizations taught virtue and required kind of uh, moral uprightness for membership. Freemasonry emphasized uh, the need to safeguard the sacred, right? a principle that Joseph repeatedly taught to the Relief Society. Um, he even referred to the society members as Masons on one occasion. A few weeks later, Joseph would introduce the endowment ceremony to a small group of church members. This ceremony drew upon the symbols and rituals of Masonry as well as the doctrine fleshed out in the Book of Abraham and other revelations that he had recently published. So it's interesting, again, when you open up this volume and you see these events all happening in succession in the very same room, it's, it's pretty fascinating. You can see some of the similarities uh, between the events. The last document I want to identify is a discourse as reported by Eliza Arsnow, and it's dated 28 April 1842. And in this discourse, he talks about the fact that he's, he thinks that his mortality is limited. He he's not going to be in Nauvoo very long. He's been called to the other side. I think that's the first time we see him talking about that kind of thing between now and the days when he was martyred. And the reason that this impressed me was because here we see Joseph express emotions of fatigue and resolve and relief that he wasn't going to have to do this 
any longer. And as you mentioned before, a lot of people portray him in this period as a megalomaniac, that he wants to do all these things. And here in this discourse, we're seeing a man who says, I don't want to do this anymore. I'm tired. We've all felt that. Elsewhere in these documents, you see Joseph express urgency, impatience, certitude, humility, questioning, and despondence. The documents really show a complex Joseph. So my question to you is, what impressions did you have about this period of church history after working with these documents so intimately, and maybe even on what Joseph was thinking and doing during this period? Yeah, one of the greatest things about being familiar with the documents produced by Joseph Smith is that you come to know Joseph on a much deeper level. While his revelations and his visions and discourses sort of highlight his role as a, as a prophet and a revelator, many of the more mundane documents, you know, the journals, the letters, the meeting minutes even, um, allow us to get to know Joseph as a human being in the trenches, warts and all. By reading the documents he produced, I think we can gain a, a deeper appreciation of the ways in which he consecrated his life to building up the kingdom of God. And for my part, I'm really most grateful to, uh, I guess, to kind of quote an 1839 letter from Liberty Jail that Joseph was willing to, to waste and wear out his life in bringing to light all the hidden things of darkness. So that's kind of the takeaway I get as being a historian of this time period is that uh, Joseph was a complex individual, and I appreciate that he was a complex individual, and I get to see that each day. Uh, and yet, despite his shortcomings, he is doing all these things, right? I, I can't imagine somebody being willing to take on all these responsibilities unless he truly believed what he was preaching. Thank you, Christian. I appreciate you spending so much time with us today and introducing us to some of the gems found in this last document volume. Thanks. It's been a pleasure to be here. Be sure to check out LDSperspectives.com to subscribe, catch up on past episodes, download transcripts, and find show notes. LDS Perspectives podcast is not affiliated with The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed represent the views of the guests or the podcasters alone. While the ideas presented may vary from traditional understandings or teachings, they in no way reflect criticism of LDS church leaders, policies, or practices.